Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, this is Amit. On behalf of all of us at Cardio Nerds, we are thrilled to bring to you our Decipher the Guideline series for the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and created for educational purposes only. This series was developed by the Cardio Nerds and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college student through advanced fellows with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bazanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance along the way. So friends, join us as we get to learn about the heart failure guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. And now, let's get nerdy. The following question refers to section 9.5 of the 2022 AJACC HFSA guideline for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by Western Michigan University medical student and cardio nerds intern Shrivani Reddy. Answered first by Brigham and Women's Medicine resident and director of cardio nerds internship, Dr. Gurleen Kaur, and then by expert faculty, Dr. Shashank Sinha. Dr. Sinha is an assistant professor of medical education at the University of Virginia School of Medicine and an advanced heart failure, MCS, and transplant cardiologist at Inova Fairfax Medical Campus. He currently serves as both the director of the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit and Cardiovascular Critical Care Research Program at Inova Fairfax. He is also a steering committee member for the Multicenter Cardiogenic Shock Working Group and Critical Care Cardiology Trials Network and an associate editor for the Journal of Cardiac Failure, the official journal of the Heart Failure Society of America. Dr. Sinhide, it is an honor to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. Truly my honor and privilege to be here with all of you. Shivani, do you have a question for us? Yeah, I do, Mike. So today we have Mr. Shaw, who is a 65-year-old man with a history of hypertension and non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, LVES of 25% from six months prior, was admitted with acute decompensated heart failure. He's currently being diuresed with a bumetanide drip, but is only making 20 cc's per hour of urine. On exam, blood pressure is 85 over 68 millimeters of mercury, and heart rate is 110 beats per minute. His JVP is at 12 centimeters and extremities are cool with dready pulses. Blood work is notable for a lactate of 3.5 millimoles per liter and creatinine of 2.5 milligrams per deciliter with a baseline creatinine of 1.2 milligrams per deciliter. What is the most appropriate next step? A. Augment diuresis with metolazone. B. Start sodium nitroprusside. C. Start dobutamine. D. Start oral metoprolol, or E, none of the above. Quirlene, can you help us out with the correct answer here? Yeah, thank you so much for the question, Shivani. So in this case, the correct answer is C, start dibutamine. So in this scenario, the patient is in cardiogenic shock given the hypotension and evidence of end-organ hypoperfusion on examined labs. The patient's cool extremities, low urine output, elevated lactate, and elevated creatinine all point towards hypoperfusion. 
So in patients with cardiogenic shock, intravenous inotropic support should be used to maintain systemic perfusion and preserve end organ function. And this is a class 1 level of evidence BNR recommendation by the heart failure guidelines. Also, in patients with cardiogenic shock whose end organ function cannot be maintained by pharmacologic means, temporary mechanical circulatory support is reasonable to support cardiac function. And this is a class 2A level of evidence BNR recommendation by the heart failure guidelines as well. So the SKY cardiogenic shock criteria can be used to divide patients into stages. So the way to think about the shock criteria is stage A is a patient at risk for cardiogenic shock, but currently does not have any signs or symptoms. So this could be a patient presenting with an MI without present evidence of shock. And then the next stage, stage B, is pre-shock. This is a patient who has volume overload, tachycardia, and hypotension, but does not have the hypoperfusion based on exam and lab evaluation. And then next is stage C, which is classic cardiogenic shock. So that's the cold and wet profile. Bedside findings for stage C shock include cool extremities, weak pulses, ultra mental status, decreased urine output, and or respiratory distress. And then lab findings include impaired renal function, increased lactate, increased LFTs, and or acidosis. And then stage D in the shock criteria is deteriorating with worsening hypotension and hypoperfusion with escalating use of pressors or mechanical circulatory support. And then finally, we have stage E shock, which is extremis. There's refractory hypotension and hyperperfusion with circulatory collapse. So in the case of our patient in this question stem, he's in sky shock C or classic cardiogenic shock. In this example, choice A is incorrect because augmenting diuresis with metolazone can be useful in a patient with diuretic resistance and decompensated heart failure. But in this setting, our patient is hypotensive and fits the wet and cool profile, so will benefit from inotropic support to increase end organ perfusion. Choice B is also incorrect. Sodium nitroprusside can be used to increase cardiac output in cardiogenic shock, and it's particularly useful in patients with high systemic vascular resistance. And it actually has a class 2A indication, level of evidence BNR, that's both for nitroglycerin, IV nitroglycerin, and IV nitroprusside in patients who are admitted with decompensated heart failure without systemic hypotension as an adjuvant to diuretic therapy for the relief of dyspnea. But in this case, our patient is hypotensive, so vasodilators would not be appropriate at this time. Choice C is also incorrect. Metoprolol is a negative inotropic agent, so should not be used in this patient who is in cardiogenic shock. And then another concept that's relevant to this question is the use of invasive hemodynamic monitoring to guide therapy. The use of a PA line has a class 2B recommendation or level of evidence BNR in the heart failure guidelines in patients presenting with cardiogenic shock to define hemodynamic subsets and appropriate management strategies. So obtaining hemodynamic data via a PA line can be particularly useful when escalating to mechanical circulatory support where there's diagnostic uncertainty or when a patient is in shock and is not responding to empiric initial shock measures. So the use of PA catheters has been controversial since the ESCAPE trial, which showed no benefit in decompensated heart failure. But it's important to remember with any trial who was included in the trial. So in the ESCAPE trial, they did not include or enroll patients with cardiogenic shock. So several observational studies since that time have shown association between PA catheter use and improved outcomes in cardiogenic shock, particularly in conjunction with short-term mechanical circulatory support. PA catheters are a diagnostic tool, so they're best utilized when the hemodynamic information can be translated into appropriate interventions, and that's determining response to medical and MCS therapy, weaning off of MCS therapy, or uncovering right ventricular failure to guide appropriate therapy. 
Another concept in the case of cardiogenic shock is that studies have shown benefit with multidisciplinary teams of heart failure and critical care specialists, interventional cardiologists, and cardiac surgeons. And these teams are also capable of providing appropriate palliative care. And the heart failure guidelines have a class 2A level of evidence BNR recommendation for the management of patients with cardiogenic shock by an experienced multidisciplinary shock team. So to summarize and put this patient together, it's important to recognize cardiogenic shock early on based on clinical criteria of hypotension and hypoperfusion and begin prompt initiation of IV inotropic agents such as dibutamine and or MCS to optimize end organ function. And when there's insufficient clinical improvement with initial measures, that's when invasive hemodynamic assessment is particularly useful and is recommended. So now, Dr. Sin, I want to turn it over to you to hear your thoughts about this patient and how you approach cardiogenic shock, both in terms of choice of inotropic agent, as well as MCS device consideration, and overall the impact and utility of a shock team. Well, thanks so much, Gerlene. And there's so much to unpack there. And then you've done that beautifully, concisely, and comprehensively. But I think there are several important considerations in evaluating a patient with stage C or classic cardiogenic shock. First, as we are here to review the guidelines, the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA heart failure guidelines, the only class one recommendation, at least as it pertains to cardiogenic shock, is really for intravenous inotropic support to be used to maintain systemic perfusion and preserve end organ performance. And that's sort of a level of evidence B and R or non-randomized. And so that's important to recognize. And where does that sort of literature come from? I think the most recent literature that I would encourage our listeners to be cognizant of is the recently published Capital Dore Me trial in the New England Journal last year, which looked at 192 patients in a single center in Canada, 96 in each group. And importantly, the primary outcome was a composite in-hospital death from any cause, resuscitated cardiac arrest, receipt of a heart transplant or mechanical circulatory support, non-fatal MI, TIA or stroke diagnosed by a neurologist or initiation of renal replacement therapy. And then secondary outcomes included the individual components of these primary composite outcome. And unfortunately, in this trial, there was no significant difference between motorone and dibutamine with respect to either the primary composite outcome or important secondary outcomes. And while sobering, it reminds us that there's still a lot of work to be done in establishing what the appropriate therapeutic strategy should be for managing patients with cardiogenic shock. Now, as you've highlighted, it's always important to go back to what the inclusion and exclusion criteria are in these various randomized control trials. And then, of course, how generalizable are they to our patient population that we encounter in our day-to-day clinical practice? And when we do that, we recognize that while this was an important study and clearly helped add some valuable knowledge to the medical literature, it incorporated patients that were from SCI-B to SCI-E shock and incorporated both AMI as well as heart failure shock patients. In patients with varying congestive profiles, LV dominant, RV dominant, BIV dominant. So it was difficult to ascertain. And obviously these secondary endpoints, you know, were underpowered to really detect meaningful differences here. And so more work is to be done. And I applaud the authors for not only recognizing those limitations, but now embarking on sort of a capital DORAME 2 trial, looking at sort of inotropes versus placebo therapy for really sky stage C and D cardiogenic shock, which is perhaps the most predominant of what we encounter in our clinical practice. The second point that I want to highlight is with respect to temporary MCS. How do we choose the right device 
for the right patient at the right time. And the reality is that randomized data here also is sorely lacking. The danger shock trial enrolling in both Denmark and Germany is a prospective multi-center open-label trial in AMI shock patients, randomized one-to-one to Impella CP or you know, guideline-directed medical therapy. And it was just looking to enroll 360 patients. And it's been nearly a decade since it's been open, and yet the trial has still not reached completion. I think as of 2018, there were about 100 patients that were randomized and had sort of a median arterial lactate of five and a half. So with a median systolic blood pressure of 76 and a median LBF of 20%. So very sick patient population and an important study because perhaps this will be the first adequately empowered randomized study to really ascertain whether mechanical circulatory support with an Impella device can improve outcomes in AMI Shaw. The other study that I think it's important for our listeners to be aware of is Dr. Teeley's trial on ECLS shock, which is examining 420 patients. Again, an international multi-center randomized open-label trial comparing whether treatment with extracorporeal life support or ECLS, in addition to early revascularization with PCI or coronary artery bypass grafting and optimal medical therapy is beneficial in comparison to those who don't receive ECLS in patients, again, with AMI cardiogenic shock. I emphasize that point because unfortunately, 90% of the trials by some conservative estimate are really outside the U.S. as it pertains to cardiogenic shock, and 90% of them are really in AMI shock. And yet we have very compelling multi-center registry data, both from the cardiogenic shock working group, as well as the critical care cardiology trials network that show that non-ischemic shock, or also known as heart failure related shock, is now the most common and prevalent etiology of shock. And so I applaud the investigators in Italy that have helped design the ALT-SHOP-2 trial, which I'll just mention here, prospective randomized multicenter trial looking at whether patients with ADHF shock will be randomized to early intraortic balloon pump versus vasoactive therapy and looking at sort of a long-term outcome of at least 60-day survival or successful bridge to heart replacement therapy. So some exciting clinical trials, I think, coming down the pipeline to help inform the literature. And for that reason, it gets to perhaps your third question here, which is the utility of cardiogenic shock teams. I was pleased to be part of our team here at Innova Fairfax, led by Dr. Tarani and Truesdale under the support and sponsorship of Dr. O'Connor, showing that a multidisciplinary standardized team-based approach to cardiogenic shock was associated with improved survival, particularly in AMI shock and in all patients with cardiogenic shock. That was published in JAK in 2019. Concurrently, other single center observations from Dr. Dragos's group at University of Utah and the University of Ottawa group ultimately led to a multi-center analysis, albeit a retrospective observational study from the Critical Care Cardiology Trials Network and Dr. Morrow, examining 24 centers across, you know, 1,200 plus cardiogenic shock admissions, showing that centers with shock teams were more likely to obtain invasive hemodynamics, use advanced types of temporary mechanical support, and have lower risk-adjusted mortality. And we are pleased to now see that the 2022 guidelines actually have provided a two-way recommendation for employing a cardiogenic shock team and that it may be reasonable in the management of these patients. The last point I do want to briefly emphasize is your escape comments. We are currently in the process of what is affectionately known as sort of the escape from escape, which is the PA catheter and cardiogenic shock study led by Naveen Kapoor, Dan Burkoff, and Renrique Kanwar 
I'm pleased to serve as one of the co-investigators on this study, looking at PA catheter use in acute decompensated heart failure shock patients. We have not prescribed an algorithm. It's 400 patients across 10 sites in the U.S. We've already randomized the first couple patients at Tufts. And I think this is very exciting. The primary endpoint is going to be in-hospital mortality. And let's put it to the test. Let's see if the PA catheter really does make a difference. It seems to be a prominent feature of many of these shock teams and certainly seems to influence device selection. So perhaps this will be the first of a series of clinical trials from these important registries as we have this defining decade in cardiogenic shock. Thank you so much, Dr. Sinha. It was so helpful to hear your insights and just remember that cardiogenic shock of itself is heterogeneous in terms of acute MI shock versus heart failure shock and thinking about that when we interpreted trials. And it's definitely exciting to hear about all the ongoing trials since there's been such a need for more randomized evidence in the domain of cardiac critical care. Thank you, Gurleen and Dr. Sinha, for walking us through some of the concepts, criteria, and trials related to cardiogenic shock. And thank you also for helping us figure out the best next step for our patient, Mr. Shock. 